We turn from your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 21. Studying our way through the book of Acts. Being challenged, moved, and excited as we see the work of the Holy Spirit in the early church and the fire of love burning in the hearts of the disciples and the apostles, reminding us of what the church can be today. Acts chapter 21, verses 8 through 16. And on the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, entering the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven. We stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. And as we were staying there for some days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt And he bound his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we had heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go to Jerusalem. And Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, the will of the Lord be done. And after these days, we got ready and started on our way up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us to Nason of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to lodge. So we rejoin Paul toward the end of his second missionary journey. We come to the city of Caesarea, where Paul is a guest in the home of Philip the Evangelist. Twenty years earlier, Philip had fled from Jerusalem because of the persecution instigated mostly by Paul before his conversion, when he was still known as Saul of Tarsus, and he's arresting people, having people thrown in prison, having people killed. And so Philip left, and he went into uh, Samaria, where he began preaching the gospel there, and many, many people were coming to Christ. And then, remember, God led him down to Gaza, where he led the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ, and then on his way home, he was stopping and preaching the gospel in various cities, and then he settled and made his home in Caesarea. And we know that Philip was a godly man and a spiritual leader in his home, because all four of his daughters loved the Lord. All four of them had been given the gift of prophecy, And they would receive words and revelations from the Lord to share with the people. Now it's 20 years since he left, since Philip left Jerusalem, and him and Paul are not on opposite sides of the fence anymore. They're a team now working together for the Lord. But while they're there, a prophet named Agabus comes down into the city and he's visiting with them in Philip's home and he receives a revelation from the Lord. And so he takes Paul's belt and he binds his hands and his feet 
And he says the Holy Spirit is signifying that in this way, the owner of this belt will be bound in Jerusalem and turned over to the Gentiles. And God would often ask his prophets to act out the prophecy, to dramatize the prophecy so that it's not just coming to them in words. Uh, They will be able to visualize it, give them a visual object lesson to leave a stronger, more lasting impression upon their hearts. There was one time when God called Ezekiel uh, to prophesy over the city of Jerusalem, to bring them that message from God that if they don't turn from their evil ways, God's going to bring judgment upon them. He's going to bring the armies of Babylon down, and they're going to surround the city and lay siege to the city and they're going to attack the city and they're going to conquer it and many will be killed and many will be led away into captivity. But then he asked Ezekiel to dramatize the prophecy for them. First of all, to show them what the siege was going to be like when the city was surrounded and their food supplies would be cut off. So Ezekiel only ate a few bites of bread and drank a few sips of water each day, so that that we would realize what it's going to be like. And then God asked Ezekiel to bake whatever little bread that he had over a fire made with human dung and straw. And no Jew would ever defile himself with contact with human dung, uh, or defile himself by eating something that had been prepared in that manner, but God wanted to show them, this is what your immorality looks like to me. This is the stench of your evil ways that's rising to heaven. And so oftentimes the prophecy would be dramatized for the people, and so that's what God is putting on the heart of Agabus to do. He binds his hands and his feet with Paul's belt and says, This is what's going to happen to the owner of this bell when he gets to Jerusalem. And so the believers there in Philip's home began begging Paul not to go to Jerusalem. They love this man. Please, please don't go. God is showing you what's going to happen to you. You're going to be arrested. You're going to be bound in chains and shackles in some cold, dark dungeon somewhere. You're not going to be able to do ministry anyways. Why go? Go somewhere else where you can be effective in ministry. And that brings up the question, was Paul disobedient to God when he went to Jerusalem? And it's interesting because the scholars and the commentators are pretty much divided down the middle on that question. It's about 50-50. Many believe that he was absolutely disobedient when he went to Jerusalem. And uh, just as many believe that he wasn't disobedient, that God was just revealing to him what was going to happen to him there, preparing him for what was going to happen, but not telling him not to go. And the question gets more difficult when you look at verse 4 in this chapter, because there we find that the disciples were telling Paul through the Holy Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. So, If that is correctly interpreted that the Holy Spirit was telling Paul through those disciples not to go to Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit saying don't go, then he was indeed being disobedient in going. But that verse also 
can be translated and interpreted that the disciples, based on impressions made by the Holy Spirit, were telling him not to go. In other words, the same thing as verse 12, based on those impressions by the Holy Spirit of what was waiting for him there, that they, the disciples, not God, were telling him not to go. So you can take whatever side of the argument you want. It's not something for Christians to argue about or be dogmatic about. Uh, My own personal opinion, which is never worth very much anyway, but my opinion is that he was not disobedient when he went to Jerusalem, and that is based on what we find in Acts chapter 16, because in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas wanted to go into Asia, and the Holy Spirit forbid them to go, and so they didn't go. They didn't know why. They were confused. God, don't you love the people in Asia? (laughs) Of course God loves the people in Asia, and God's going to bring the gospel there, but he wanted them somewhere else at that particular time. Then they wanted to go into Bithynia, and the, and the Spirit of Jesus said no. And so they didn't go. They stayed where they were, confused, what's going on, waiting on the Lord. And then remember, Paul got a vision of a man in Macedonia calling him and saying, come on over and help us. And then Paul knew where God was calling them, and he went to Macedonia, which is modern-day Greece. So three times in chapter 16, Paul was obedient to God, who is telling him where to go and where not to go. So my position is that if he perceived God was telling him not to go, he wouldn't have gone. And that Paul's perception was, God's just preparing me for what's coming. Just like what happened when, at his conversion, when Paul sent Ananias to pray over him and to tell him all the things he was going to have to suffer for the name of Jesus, all the persecution and affliction that was going to come to him because of his uh, service to the Lord, and that Paul is just perceiving that God is just confirming what he had told him in the beginning, this is what you need to expect and be prepared for. And it's also possible in my mind that God was testing his resolve because we always have a choice. Love demands a choice. God doesn't want us to give to him only because we have to. I don't really want to give to God, but I have to. That doesn't bless God, and we're not blessed by that kind of giving. So God wants us to know we have a choice, so that when we give, we give because we love God, and and we find great joy in doing so, and it's the same with our service. Well, I suppose I should be serving God. I suppose I should get involved in some ministry. I really don't want to. I'd rather be doing other things, but I guess I have to. That doesn't bless God. So we always have a choice so that when we do serve God and get involved in in ministry, it's an expression of our love for God and gratitude. We do it because we want to. We do it joyfully. And so it's possible that God was just reminding Paul that He had a choice. There's a price to pay if you continue this path of serving me. Remember, Jesus had a choice. Jesus knew he had an option. He could call down 12 legions of angels to rescue him and deliver him if he wanted to. But he said, how will the scriptures be fulfilled? How will salvation come to the world? And so he pushed through the agony of the Garden of Gethsemane and said, I'm I'm willing. I don't want to go to the cross, but not my will but yours be done. So perhaps uh, this was just another test of Paul's resolve. You know the price you're going to have to pay. Jesus told us before we ever make a commitment to Christ to count the cost. And so Paul's response to them is 
why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm not just ready to be bound in Jerusalem. I'm ready to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Why are you breaking my heart? Do you really think I would forsake my calling to bring the good news of salvation to lost people out of concern for my own well-being and my own safety? I'm willing to pay any price for opportunities to share the love of Jesus with people. And we remember his words to the elders in Ephesus, of the church of Ephesus, we saw last week in chapter 20. He said, bound in spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, and I don't know exactly what's going to happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, solemnly, of the bonds and afflictions that await me there. But I do not consider my life as dear unto myself in order that I may finish my course and the ministry which the Lord gave me to solemnly proclaim the grace of God. I don't consider my life dear unto myself. What Paul considered dear unto himself were the precious eternal souls of his Jewish brothers and sisters in Jerusalem that were lost, they were separated from God by their sins, and they were in danger of remaining separated from God forever and missing out on heaven. That's all that Paul counted as dear unto himself. And that's why I love studying the book of Acts. That's why I love studying the life of the Apostle Paul. I think all of us can agree it is so inspirational. And it just challenges and convicts us and, and inspires us. Can you imagine the impact this, the church in America would have on our culture if we all had Paul's heart? I don't care what the cost is. I would sacrifice anything for the opportunity to share the love of Jesus with people. So I know sometimes people are going to be hostile. I know sometimes people are going to get angry. People, there might even be verbal abuse. There could even be physical abuse. I don't care. I'm willing to take that risk and take that chance for the opportunity and open door to share the love of Jesus with people. That's why Paul's life was so powerful, and that's the heart that it's going to take for the church to have a powerful influence in the world today. And so they realized they weren't going to persuade Paul. His heels were dug in. So what did they say? They remained silent and said, the will of the Lord be done. We're not going to argue with you anymore. We know we're right. We know this is a Dumb mistake, and you're just being stubborn. <laughs> but you've made up your mind. We're not going to let this turn into a heated argument. We're not going to let this get ugly and damage our relationship. So they ceased. King James and New King James, the wording is, they ceased, comma, saying, the will of the Lord be done. Now, what's interesting is in the original Greek manuscripts, there's no punctuation marks, so there's, there would be no comma there. The English translators had to add that to give the true meaning of what was being said. But think about it, how, easily it would, how easy it would be to misinterpret this verse if you're reading it without the comma. It could be understood to say, they ceased saying the will of the Lord be done. We're not going to say that anymore. We're tired of saying that. We're not going to say the will of the Lord be done. They ceased saying that. There was a wealthy man by the name of John Astor. 
uh, businessman in, in New York in the early 1900s. His wife was touring Europe, and she found a necklace that she really, really wanted. It was so expensive, it was worth $250,000. Now, that's a lot of money today, but back then, it would be worth about $2.5 million today. So she sent a cable to her husband asking him if, if, she, if she could buy the necklace. Well, he had not told her that they were having some, some financial issues and some cash flow problems. So he had to send a cable back to her that said, no, comma, price too high. Well, the cable operator mistakenly left out the comma, and so the message she read was, no price too high. And she told her friends, look what a wonderful husband I have. Isn't he amazing? Look at this, no price too high. And she bought the necklace. John Astor sued the cable company and won the lawsuit. Never underestimate the power and the importance of a comma. This is, this is so important. They ceased doing what? Arguing. They ceased, comma, instead of arguing, saying, the will of the Lord be done. And that's what godly people do. That's how godly people live their lives once we have grown and matured to the place where we can trust God with our lives. We can trust God with the circumstances and events in our lives. We know that he's sovereign and he is able to be in control of the events of our lives. And that's why we don't get into horrible fights where the disagreements go to the point where there are very heated arguments and yelling and cussing and doing so much terrible damage to relationships. We, we disagree with one another all the time. Married couples disagree all the time. But when we learn to trust God that he's in control, we realize when we need to stop when we realize the next step is it's going to get heated, it's going to get ugly, and so we say, okay, I'm going to stop arguing, and I'm just going to commit this to the Lord. Lord, would you please show this stubborn person how wrong they are? <laughs> or, Lord, I commit this situation to you. You work this out according to your perfect plan and your perfect will, and I'm not going to say anything I regret, do anything I regret. I'm not going to damage this relationship over that issue. Now, the ungodly who don't know God and Christians, believers, who haven't grown to the place where they trust God to be in control, they feel the pressure that they have to be in control. And because of that pressure... Because of that fear that if, the, if it doesn't happen their way, the end result is going to be very bad. It's going to be such a big mess. I have to get my way. It's pressure. It's fear. Because I know what's right and what's best. And if it's not my way, it, this is not going to work out good. And, and so they'll do whatever is necessary. They'll, push, they'll be pushy. They will bully people. They will threaten people. They will use manipulation. They will use deception. They will use verbal abuse if necessary. And it's justified in their mind if everything turns out the way they know it should. And it's all because they can't stop the arguing and give it over to the Lord, trust God with it, and say, the will of the Lord be done. 
Let's say that there's a manager of a convenience store. He's not a believer, he doesn't know the Lord. And his boss, who's the owner, is making some decisions that he doesn't agree with. In fact, they're such important decisions, he's convinced it's gonna lead to the ruin of the business. This business is gonna be totally ruined if you do this. We're gonna go under, I'm gonna be out of a job. And so he feels the fear and the pressure of what, what he thinks is gonna happen So the disagreement builds and builds and builds until it's a fierce argument and the yelling and the cussing and it gets really ugly and it finally reaches a point where the owner has no other option. He has to terminate him. He has to fire him. So the relationship is ruined and he lost a job over that. Now, the godly man who knows he can trust God to to be in control and work things out in his life He shares his views, that he disagrees with the decision, and he respectfully uh, expresses why he thinks this is a bad decision, and he appeals, maybe two or three times, he appeals to his boss, please, don't you see, and and does it very respectfully. But before it starts to get heated or get ugly, he drops it. He ceases comma, saying, the will of the Lord be done. He knows he can just go to prayer. Lord, I give this situation to you. If this is a terrible decision and it's going to ruin the business and you don't want that to happen, you speak to him, you change his mind, you change his heart. Uh, If he's right and I'm wrong and it works out really good, then I'll be especially glad I didn't make World War III out of this. Uh, But if he's wrong and it's a mess and the business is ruined, then I'll accept whatever your will is. Maybe you have something different. Maybe you have something better planned for me. But I'm not going to ruin this relationship and lose this job by getting in the flesh over that issue or any other issue. This is what happens when we grow spiritually to the point where this is how we live our lives, when we can't persuade someone before we let it become divisive and rip the relationship apart, we just, we just back off and give it to the Lord. We cease, comma, saying the will of the Lord be done. Godly wives have to live their whole lives like this because they disagree with their husbands on a lot of things all the time. And most of the time, they're 100% certain he's being stupid and stubborn. And 99% of the time, they're probably right. So they respectfully try to reason with him, don't you see, blah, blah, blah. No, he doesn't see. He's convinced that's the right decision. So she appeals to him very respectfully, but sweetheart, really, don't you see, you know? And she, she, she appeals to him maybe several times. But she does it respectfully. And then she realizes he's made up his mind. He's digging his heels on this. He's sure that he's right on this issue. This is either going to get ugly. This is either going to become World War III. Or somebody's going to have to back off on this issue. I'm going to cease, comma, cease what? Striving. Cease striving and know that he is God. I'm going to cease, comma, saying, the will of the Lord be done. So she's quiet. She just goes to prayer. He already knows how I feel. I've told him. 
I'm just going to go to prayer and give this to the Lord. You, Lord, you work this out however you want. I trust you to be in control in this situation. If he's wrong, and we both know he is, Lord, show him. You can speak to him. You can show him. It changes his mind. If he's going to go through with it and it turns out to be the right decision, I'll be glad. I didn't make a war out of it. If it turns out to be the wrong decision and there's a big mess, I trust you to help us clean it up. You'll get us through it. And boy, will you teach my husband something if it turns out to be a mess. I won't even have to rub his nose in it. I won't even have to say, told you so, told you so. Because he'll know. Whoa, my wife was right and I was wrong. Oh my goodness, she was smarter than me on this one. Oh my goodness. Maybe I should listen to her more. Maybe I should respect her opinions and her suggestions more. She knew darn well I was wrong. What a godly wife I have. She knew this was going to be a big mess, and yet she refused to damage our relationship over this issue. She gets rewarded for not getting in the flesh, for doing it God's way, just committing it over to the Lord and saying, the will of the Lord be done. You wives, be submissive to your husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the Lord, they will be one without a word as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. How will they be one when you've struggled with this disagreement for a while? How will they be one? Yelling, screaming, throwing things? I'm not going to become the nag on this. I'm not going to become the contentious wife of Proverbs. Better to live in a desert land than a house shared with a contentious woman. I'm not going to be that woman. Better to live in the corner of an attic than a house shared with a, de- uh, with a contentious woman. I'm not going to be that woman. He won't be one by nagging and fighting. He will be one without a word. Okay, he knows how I feel. Now I'm going to be quiet. I'm going I'm to give this over to the Lord. I'm going to trust God to be in control here. I'm going to trust God to kick him in the seat of the pants if he needs to be, because God can do it way better than I can. And in the meantime, this marriage relationship is not going to be damaged over that issue or any issue. And that's an important issue. And there are many very important issues that come up that we disagree on as couples but they're never more important than the marriage relationship. And that's the wisdom of a godly woman. A wise woman builds her home. A foolish woman tears it down with her own hands. A godly woman has grown to the place where she can trust God to be in control. Oh, I know he's wrong. Oh, I know this is going to be a mess, but if it is, God will help us clean it up. He will get us through it, and he will teach my husband what he needs to learn through this. I trust God completely. Cease the fighting and say, the will of the Lord be done. I believe that I'd rather have God in control than me in control. I mean, after all, if God could control the universe, if God could keep the earth spinning on its axis at 1,000 miles an hour, if God can keep the earth 
orbiting the sun at a speed of 67,000 miles an hour? If God can keep the sun moving through space at 64,000 miles an hour, if he can keep the galaxy, Milky Way is one of the slowest moving galaxies. It's moving through the universe at a speed of 1,350,000 miles per hour. And there's no demolition derby in the heavens. And somehow we don't have comets and asteroids and planets pummeling the earth all the time and destroying it. If God can be in control of the cosmos, I think he can be in control of the minutia of my life. And I will learn to trust him. And I will save my relationships by never allowing the disagreements to become heated arguments and to get ugly. I will never allow myself to do damage to a precious, precious relationship when all I have to do is stop the arguing and go to prayer and give it over to the Lord and trust him to work it out however it's right and best in his mind and in his heart. Now, the exception for the wives. <laughs> there is an exception for the wives. If your husband wants you to do something that is sinful and evil and clearly unscriptural, honey, I want you to sit down with me and plan a way to uh, embezzle money from my business. You know, or I want you to help me start a brothel you know, or something clearly sinful. Then she respectfully says, um, sweetheart, God did make you the head of our home, uh, but I do have an authority higher in my life than you, and in this case, I must obey God rather than man. <laughs> no disrespect, but I must obey God rather than man. But if she's gonna defy her husband, she better have solid scriptural grounds for doing so. So, we never get in the flesh and say, okay, fine, you're not gonna listen to me, you're not gonna do it my way, I'm done with you. I'm fed up with you. I'm out of here, sayonara, adios. These disciples didn't do that, and they felt in their heart, Paul, you're so stubborn, you're so wrong. This is such a big mistake. Don't, 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 don't do it. And then he was determined to do it. They didn't say, well, then forget you. We want nothing to do with you. Verse 16 says they went with him. That's what God does with us. When we're defiant and rebellious, we're not listening to him. We're not doing it his way. I know what the Bible says, but I think, and then we go do it our way. He doesn't say, that's it, I'm done with you, I'm fed up with you, I'm out of here, sayonara, adios. He goes with us. So that when we crash, and we will, when we don't want to do things God's way, so that when we crash, he'll be right there. When we humble ourselves and admit and confess with a repentant heart, he's right there to forgive and to heal the brokenness and to restore and to bless and to get us back on the right path. Isn't that beautiful? When we're stubborn and we think we know better than God, he doesn't say, forget you, I'm out of here. No, no, no. I will never leave you, abandon you, or forsake you. You know the most important reason why we need to be able to say, God, I trust you. Not my will, but yours be done. 
cease striving and know that he is God. Give it over to the will of the Lord. The most important reason we need to learn to do that is because his will is for you and I to be with him in heaven. His will was to send his son to suffer and die on the cross to bear the penalty and punishment for our sins so that if we will just repent of our selfish, evil ways and put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, our sins are paid for and we are forgiven and we have the free gift from God, a guaranteed place in heaven. That's the most important reason we need to stop arguing with God. That's the most important reason we need to cease, comma, saying, the will of the Lord be done. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this wonderful and amazing book of Acts, Lord. You knew that we would need to be challenged at times, convicted at times, and inspired at times by being reminded of what it means to be on fire for you, what it means to be fully committed to you. Lord, our prayer is the prayer of the psalmist today. Unite our heart to fear thy name. We don't want to have a divided heart. Loving the things of the world and the pleasures of the world as much as we love you. Lord, in these last days, would you bring us to the place where we can honestly say that we love you with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. That you might accomplish your will and your work in the world through your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we want to give you an opportunity to receive the Lord into your life, whether you're here right now or whether you're watching online. This is a wonderful and exciting time in our service. You can know God. You can have the God who created you, the God who created the universe, the all-loving, all-powerful God in your life. You don't have to be alone in this world. Even if people forsake you, even if loved ones abandon you, he never will. You'll never have to be alone. You can have the Lord in your life. You don't have to face the difficulties of life in your own strength. You can have the all-powerful God working mightily in and through you, helping you with all your struggles and problems. And you don't have to rely on your own intelligence and wisdom when you face difficulties and problems. You can plug in to the one who has infinite wisdom and knowledge and understanding of all things. And he can give you words and revelations. You can have the wisdom of Solomon if you want as you go through life. You can have the Lord. You can have God in your life. You can know he loves you. Your sins are paid for and forgiven by putting your faith and trust in Jesus. No one else loves you like Jesus, and no one else suffered and died in your place. Bore the wrath of God so that you could escape 
the wrath of God, endured the punishment of your sins so you could be saved from the torment of hell. And all you have to do is open your heart and pray a simple prayer. Turn from your sin. Receive Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior by praying this prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, I have sinned. I have fallen short of your righteousness. Thank you, Jesus, for loving me. Thank you, Jesus, for suffering and dying for me. I believe in you. I receive you now as my Lord, as my Savior. Come into my heart. Wash me and cleanse me from all sin. I receive your forgiveness. I receive the free gift of eternal life. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. Fill me with the fire of your love. Strengthen me to overcome the world, the flesh, and the evil one. That I might live for you. That my life might bring you honor and glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.